0: Good evening everyone, of Tov, welcome to the Sun and the Scriptures this week as we continue our year-long journey going through the 54 portions of the Torah. Hopefully this week we can get it done in one take. Uh, In case you happen to follow up and watch last week's recording, um, you might have noticed I was wearing something different than when you came to the class live. Uh, That's because the audio did not record last week, and so I came in on Tuesday morning and came in here to to an empty room and did it again. So uh, hopefully everything got on there, and I think we fixed the issue, so we should be good uh, this evening. Uh, Let's get started with the blessing before the study of Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of the Torah. Amen. Amen. So uh, this evening, hopefully you're ready to buckle up and don't have any plans for a while uh, because I've got a lot to cover tonight. Uh, Normally, when I sit down and and write down my notes and get things going, um, the way I space things and all that, four and a half to five pages, you know, usually gets us 60 minutes. Uh, That's how I kind of time it. Um, I stopped myself at page nine. So um, it's because this week's portion, you know, when we're tying into the theme of the sun and the scriptures and we're focusing on that theme of where are we seeing the sun? Where are we seeing our Messiah? Where are we seeing Jesus of Nazareth in the text? Well, this is uh, one of those portions that, you know, oh man, he's like all over the place. And I'm like, well, I would feel guilty if I didn't tell you about that one. And then I was like, well, I'd feel guilty if I didn't tell them about that one. Uh, and so there's just so many good connections going on that I, um, I still left a lot out. But uh, I, I, it's, so you're going to get your money's worth tonight, all right? So this week of the 54 portions, this is the fourth portion. And it is the portion known as Vayera, which is the Hebrew word meaning, and he appeared. Uh, It covers Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, and goes through chapter 22, verse 24. Uh, So that's the text that we're going to be looking at this evening And. Uh You know, we began uh, the narrative of uh, Abram slash Abraham last week in the third portion with Lech Lecha and beginning in Genesis 12. And we're continuing in the Abraham narrative. And this portion, as we'll see when we talk about the summary of the portion, uh, has the famous what's known as the Akedah the Akeda in Hebrew, or the binding, the binding of Isaac by Abraham. So uh, lots and lots of connections uh, with the father offering his son uh, to our gospel. Uh, So what's going on in portion Vayera in this fourth portion of the Torah? Well, uh, what happens is we left off last week in portion Lech Lecha, With Abraham, he receives the covenant, he receives those eight promises, and then part of the sign that he is given of that covenant, God tells Abraham to circumcise himself uh, and and those in his household to which he does. And that's where this week's portion picks it up. God reveals himself to Abraham three days after Abraham's circumcision at ninety-nine. So a 99-year-old man uh, did that act upon himself, and so three days later, he's probably a little bit sore, as you can imagine. And in fact, this is where Judaism uh, gets the notion that visiting the sick is a great mitzvah, a great connection, uh, because when Abraham is recovering, uh, God comes to visit him, if you will, in the form of those three visitors to Abraham's tent that that's seen as God checking in on Abraham uh, in some traditions. Uh, So Abraham is recovering three days after his circumcision and then he rushes off when he sees three guests come to his tent and he offers to prepare a meal uh, for these three guests. One of the three Uh, of these uh, essentially divine beings, if you will, disguised as men, announces that in exactly one year, the barren Sarah will give birth to a son, to which Sarah then laughs. Abraham pleads with God to spare the wicked city of Sodom, And two of the three disguised angels arrived in the doomed city where Abraham's nephew Lot extends hospitality to them and protects them from a Sodomite mob. It's also an important kind of uh, connection there when uh, Abraham was pleading for uh, the sparing of Sodom. It's where uh, the theology, if you will, comes from that God does spare the life for the sake of a righteous person. Uh, So that ties in an important theology because Abraham says, well, look, if I can find 50 righteous people in there, will you spare them? If I can find 40, if I can find 30, if I can find 20, if I can find 10, right? Kind of whittling it down. If there's even just a righteous person, will you spare this mass amount of people to which God answers Yes, and so salvation can be found in the merit of a righteous person. So it's a very important theological concept that comes through uh, in the text of this week. Uh, the two guests the reveal that they have come to overturn Sodom, uh, but to, they're there to save Lot and his family. Lot's wife, though, turns into a pillar of salt when she disobeys the command not to look back at the burning city as they flee. So while taking shelter in a cave, Lot's two daughters, essentially believing that they and their father are the only ones alive in the world, get their father drunk, lie with him, and they become pregnant. The two sons born from this incident are the fathers of the two nations in the Bible known as Moab and Ammon. And that's also, I didn't go into it this week, I kind of toyed with it, major messianic significance there because... What do we know about Moab? This is the origin of the Moabite people. What's, who's a famous Moabitess? Ruth, right? Uh, great-grandmother of King David and obviously in the line of Messiah is uh, not a Jew and not from the land of Israel, not from a tribe of Israel, uh, but is a Moabitess. Uh, so uh, that's the origin of the people here. Abraham then moves to Gerar where the Philistine king known as Abimelech or Avimelech uh, whose name really means my father the king takes Sarah who is presented to be Abraham's sister same mistake Abraham made in last week's portion when he was in Egypt with the Pharaoh. uh, He does the same thing here, but God comes to Abimelech in a dream and warns him that he will die unless he returns Sarah to her husband. Abraham explains that he feared he would be killed uh, over the beautiful Sarah. God remembers his promise to Sarah and gives her and Abraham a son, and they name him Yitzhak or Isaac. Isaac is circumcised at the age of eight days. Abraham is 100 years old, And Sarah is 90 at Isaac's birth. Hagar and Ishmael are banished from Abraham's home in this portion, and they wander the desert. But God hears the cry of Ishmael and saves his life by showing his mother a well. Abimelech appears on the scene again and makes a treaty with Abraham at the town of Beersheba, where Abraham gives him seven sheep as a sign of their truce. God then tests Abraham's devotion by commanding him to sacrifice his son Isaac on one of the mountains of Moriah. It's important we catch that little detail in the text. He tells Abraham to go to one of the mountains of Moriah. Moriah is not a single mountain in Israel. Moriah is a range. It's in Jerusalem, modern-day Jerusalem, and the What's called essentially upper Moriah is what we know as the Mount of Olives, and the lower Moriah is known what we call the Temple Mount, or where today uh, the the Golden Dome sits on the lower Moriah. So you have upper Moriah, the Mount of Olives; lower Moriah, the Temple Mount. And God tells Abraham to take Isaac. To there, and he will show him where he is to offer his son. Uh, But keep in mind, essentially, he's taking him to Jerusalem. Isaac is bound, placed on the altar, and Abraham raises the knife to slaughter his son. A voice from heaven calls to stop him. A ram is caught in the undergrowth by its horns, and the ram is offered in Isaac's place. Uh, The horn of that ram is kept. It's, the tradition says is, is passed down from generation to generation. That becomes the shofar uh, that gathers the people. Uh, so the ram's horn is the shofar. It's the origins of the shofar, which also, I think I, think I included it, hints at some of the dates going on and when this is actually uh, occurring. So that's the summary That's the overall kind of Goodyear blimp view of what's happening in Vieira. So now, I want us to kind of zoom in, and again, keeping in theme with the sun and the scriptures, look at where we see the sun in these pages. So let's begin in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. There's a a tradition in Judaism about Abraham, and that Abraham is essentially uh, described as a, a manifestation of the attribute of God known as Chesed. C H E S E D, Chesed, God's loving kindness, God's favorable disposition, God's desire to give, and that Abraham kind of manifests that, and that Abraham was known for his hospitality, that Abraham was uh, known for his desire to uh, to serve and to give, and growing up, when I would learn those tales from my jewish side uh it always it never made sense to me. I'm like, well, that's never how it was taught to me from the christian side of my family. I was taught kind of a different angle for Abraham and then you know, over time it finally it finally hit me. No. No, that this is actually found in the person of jesus who is abraham's seed that's what we talked about last week in lake Lecha. that everything that's spoken of abraham finds its yes and its amen and its final fulfillment in his greater seed the messiah jesus and so with that and understanding that abraham is this uh, servant nature of god this desire to give Scriptures began to kind of fire off in my mind, finally. And one of them comes in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 39, where Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. In other words, if if you're truly descendants of Abraham, then act like Abraham. You guys aren't acting like Abraham. The Torah begins this week's portion by relating the story of these three mysterious visitors who appeared to Abraham. Abraham hurried to greet them and to show them hospitality personally, waiting on them, feeding them, and what's the text say? He washes their feet. Oh, yeah, okay, see? Jesus shows us that he is indeed Abraham's son because, as he says in the text, if you're truly Abraham's, then act like Abraham. And what you find is Jesus does that. Jesus does act like Abraham. At the last seder with his disciples, Jesus says in Luke 22 verse 27, I am among you as the one who serves. And he waited upon them just as Abraham waited upon his visitors. Abraham brought water and so too Jesus gives his disciples the water of life. Abraham washed their feet, and so too Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And more than that, he washes you and I clean of our sins. Abraham then says in Genesis 18, verse 4, Rest yourselves under the tree. And so too Jesus provides rest for the weary. Matthew 11, verse 28. Then... I will bring you a piece of bread that you may refresh yourself, Abraham says to his guests, Genesis 18, verse 5. Abraham, uh, again, showing that hospitality, that servant. Jesus proves himself to be Abraham's son, to be of Abraham, giving us to eat of none other than the bread of life. So when reading the story of Abraham's hospitality, the sages saw several insights related to Abraham and his personality and his hospitality and to the days of the Messiah. So part of son in the scriptures is I also want to tie into, uh, uh, tie us into the, the oral tradition of the Jewish people because I firmly believe Jesus is not only the fulfillment of the written scriptures, the written Old Testament, if you will, but he is also the literal fulfillment of the Jewish people's oral tradition as well. Jesus actively engages the oral tradition, and we see time and time again as either quoting it or alluding to it. We saw that last week again in Lake Lecha when he says, before Abraham was, I am, or when Abraham saw my day, he rejoiced. And we looked at those passages in the oral tradition that Jesus was quoting and pulling from. There's an intimate connection between the ways of Abraham and the ways of the Messiah. So I'm going to read to you now from what's known as the Midrash Rabbah, the Great Midrash. It's a collection of the oral tradition. This is in Babin Bar, it's 14.1. Listen to what it says. Everything that Abraham did for the ministering angels here in Genesis 18, the Lord will do the same for his children in the future. You will find that it's written, quoting Genesis 18, verse 4, please let a little water be brought and wash your feet. As a reward for this, the same will happen in the days of Messiah, as it says in Isaiah 30, verse 25 on every lofty mountain and every high hill there will be streams running with water. And it says in Isaiah 41.18, I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys, and I will make the wilderness a pool of water and dry land fountains of water. And we find written that Abraham says, wash your feet. And so it says in Ezekiel 16.9, Then I bathed you in water and in the land of Israel, Isaiah 1.16, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. How do we know the same will happen in the future? Isaiah 4, 4, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. And so they saw this great connection, this greater fulfillment of the actions and the deeds of Abraham to be fulfilled in the person of Messiah. And so when we study Jesus and we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we need to be looking at how is he doing the greater fulfillment of what Abraham was doing. The sages thereby reckon each gracious deed of Abraham was a foreshadowing of the work of the Messiah himself, and we're going to see that as we continue in the portion this evening. It's not just how he washed their feet or he brought them bread and water. He's the bread of life and he's the living water and so forth, but literally everything Jesus does is flowing from this actions of Abraham. And we're especially going to see that in his passion. okay. And so as this uh, portion goes on in in Bereshit Babin Bar, they even compare the tree under which Abraham directed the three strangers to sit and rest to what's called the sukkah, the covering of the messianic age that God would erect over Jerusalem that is predicted in Isaiah. So let's see all the ways are some of the ways Abraham is seen in Messiah. Genesis 18, verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? So Abraham hurried to show the stranger's hospitality. That's what he's known for. Unaware that these were angels or emissaries from the Most High, Their identity quickly became clear to him, and one of them began to speak on behalf of the Lord, saying, Genesis 18, verse 10, I will surely return to you at the same time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was inside her tent, and she overheard the conversation, and the text says this of her, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord? Uh, being old also and so that's part of the origin of Isaac's name being called laughter Sarah kind of laughs at the idea that she's going to have this child but we're wanting to think about things uh, from again how is this speaking of Messiah how does this speak about things of Messiah and the 19th century Hasidic master, uh, hes known his name is Yisrael Meir, but he's known as the Kofitz Chaim. Uh, comments on this passage. I would highly recommend the Kofitz Chaim for you to read. There's a lot of it in English. Uh, I think they even have like a little Kofitz Chaim a day for 30 days. The Kofitz Chaim spoke uh, and taught almost exclusively and how to use your mouth how to use language, how to use your tongue, how to speak correctly, how to speak holiness. And So everything was about speech. And so it's interesting that what the Kofitz Chaim has to say about Sarah laughing at the birth of this child and the connection that he makes from that to Messiah. And I think there's even a connection that can be made today. So the Kofitz Chaim... um, this is uh, some of what he said about this passage, and Sarah laughing. He says, quote, "When I studied this passage well, I was struck by great difficulties. We know that there is not one extra letter in the Torah, and that each letter has been invested with an awesome, inestimable sanctity by the giver of the Torah." Therefore, it seems astonishing that the Torah would relate this episode, which is so uncomplimentary to the righteous Sarah in such great detail. I told myself that this passage must allude to something of major significance. Finally, God enlightened me, and I perceived the message of this episode. The Kovitz then teaches that the Torah is actually here warning us not to doubt the coming of the Messiah, that was, was great revelation into this, and I think it's brilliant. Do not doubt the coming of the Messiah. Just as Sarah laughed at the notion that God would keep his promise to Abraham after so many fruitless years of waiting and hoping, we too are in danger of losing faith in the coming of the Messiah after so many years of waiting. After nearly 2,000 years, it may seem laughable to imagine that Messiah is about ready to return and may come this very day. In fact, it's not uncommon if you look around at Christian theologies, they're all now trying to get very creative and rework how the second coming isn't really a second coming because it's tarried so long, it must be something different. And so there's a lot of disbelief believe it or not about will he return will he come back and the kofitz Kaim is tying it directly to this idea of sarah laughing because again the promise to sarah and abraham was that all nations would be blessed through their seed and remember in the hebrew that word is singular doesn't mean through their descendants, plural, but that they would have one singular descendant that would be the blessing of all of the world. And they, just like we, just like the Apostle Paul, understand that singular seed to be the Messiah. And so her laughing at it is her doubting that she will see the Messiah. So when the Kophetz teaches that a similar situation occurred just before the redemption from Egypt, When Moses came to the Hebrew slaves declaring the hour of their redemption, they did not believe him either. Scripture says in Exodus 6 verse 9, Moses spoke spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. The long years of suffering in Egypt had crushed their hopes, and they no longer had the strength to believe in the promised redemption. And you can even sort of see that again in the church today, the, the loss of a fervor in preaching the advent of Messiah and the, ad, the, the coming of Messiah. The same was true of their mother, Sarah. After decades of waiting for the promised child, she had utterly despaired. She had already resolved that she was going to settle for Ishmael. The Kofit's kaim then points out that many of us are like Sarah. We confess a belief in Messiah's coming, but we do not actually anticipate it on a daily basis. We no longer live with the urgency that, say, the early church did, that today could be the day. I mean, ask yourself that. Today, have you pondered that today could be the day? Or that today is the day and that you should live as if today is the day and live it with that fullness? Or does it scantly enter into your mind? If one truly believes in the possibility of Messiah's imminent arrival, it would be part of our constant state of spiritual preparation. If, however, such is not the case, then it is apparent that our talk of his imminent coming is nothing more than lip service. In reality, our faith is minuscule. This is alluded to in the words told to Sarah, "'No, you have laughed indeed.'" In a similar teaching, the Apostle Peter tells us this, 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Genesis 18, verse 14. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So part of what we do in Torah, Sun and Scriptures, what we did in Echoes of Eden, what we do in Mosaic on Sunday mornings, is we try to train our minds to think like good first century Galilean disciples. And part of that in your Hebraic toolbox is to recognize loaded words. And you have one here in Genesis 18, verse 14. The phrase, the appointed time. For a Western ear in the 21st century, that just may sound like that's some random time that maybe God himself knows, but no one else knows that he's appointed for that but that's actually not what the word means that that's being translated from, okay? It's a bigger word and it's a bigger concept Uh, and it all again points to Messiah. So let's kind of flush that out. God tells Abraham that Sarah's going to have a son at the appointed time, at the appointed time. The Hebrew word for appointed time is the Hebrew word moed, right? Moed which can mean appointed time, but more specifically, it means appointment. And even more specifically, for us in our language, it means a festival or a holiday. It means a very specific date on the calendar that's well known. God has an appointment calendar with us, and on that calendar, those dates are set. So, for instance, Passover is called a moed. In fact, Leviticus tells us there are seven of these, moedim, plural, that there are seven of these. And so it's referring to something specific. So let's keep going with that. The majority opinions are that Isaac was born at one of two appointed times, either at the time of Passover, which is called a moed in the Bible, or the other moed that's in the Bible, one of the others, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. Because of the latter opinion, Genesis 21, which tells the story of the birth of Isaac, is the primary reading on the festival known as Rosh Hashanah. So every year, just like the lectionary we have, uh, Christmas Eve, we read Luke chapter 2. Christmas Day, we read John chapter 1. On Resurrection Sunday, we read one of the the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, on Pentecost Day, we read Acts chapter 2. right? The, the biblical text clues you into the day it is, the appointed day. The appointed day is connected to a text. The text that has always been historically connected to Rosh Hashanah, as long as we have record of the Jewish people reading the Torah in a public way, which goes all the way to the time before Ezra and Nehemiah, they have always read... Genesis 21, the birth of Isaac on Rosh Hashanah. The birth of Isaac can be compared to the coming of Messiah. Isaac is the promised and long-awaited son, and just as Isaac was born at the appointed time, so too Messiah comes at the appointed time. Acts 1, verse 7, "...it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority." Matthew 24, verse 36, Of that day and hour no one knows, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Nonetheless, we celebrate the Messiah's first coming in the appointed times of the spring festivals. Passover, Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, we see in that Jesus filling them full, and we anticipate in the fall festivals his filling them full at his second coming. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths. Redemption does and will always come at its appointed time. And I want to throw that out to you that if Isaac is born uh, at the time of Rosh Hashanah, if you follow through the Torah cycle and follow the dating, he is then offered by Abraham on the altar on Passover. So the date is the same, the same date of Isaac being offered is the same date on the calendar, the same Moed that God offers his son on a cross. So some connections there. Genesis 21, verse 2. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Many children in the Bible are born in a miraculous manner. Sarah is the first of several barren women who miraculously conceive and give birth to sons. The Bible intends for us to regard a miraculous birth as evidence that God has set aside that child for some greater purpose in this world. When a barren woman gives birth to a son, a true miracle has occurred. So Isaac is a miracle baby boy. Obviously, God has singled out that child from children born in an ordinary manner. From conception and birth, the child born of a barren woman is considered supernatural. The miraculous conception and birth of Jesus serves the same function, but at a greater level. Even more incredible than a barren woman conceiving and giving birth is a virgin conceiving and giving birth. The purpose of the virgin birth narrative is to show us that Messiah is exceptional in God's plan, that this child is truly unique. He's not just another child. And like Isaac, he is a select child of God with a great destiny before him. In fact, just as the miracle of his conception far exceeds that of Isaac's conception, so too his purpose and his destiny exceed that of Isaac. But as we're going to see, his destiny was foreshadowed by Isaac. And I'll give you a little hint as we get into the acada. I meant to bring it in because I can never say it from memory correctly. So I will try to bring it next week just so that you can hear it in its fullness and its beauty. But it starts off with kind of like a guess who said this or guess who believes this and it's essentially um, a child is born from a miraculous conception through whose shedding of the blood brings atonement and iniquity for the people and it kind of goes on and on from there and you're like who and what am I talking about and you of course you think you're talking about Jesus you're talking about christians but it really it was written by an orthodox rabbi to say no this is what jews believe about isaac and it's kind of mind blowing when you read that perspective and how it's written out so i'm going to try i meant it's it's sitting on my bookshelf in my office i meant to bring it tonight i'm going to bring it next week because i want to read that for you because it's it's so beautiful because then you can really hear the connection between what's going on in this week's portion and how it was, again, the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus on the Emmaus Road with those two disciples, and he opens the scriptures to them and shows them how everything written in Moses was about him. Um, And that includes this account of Isaac. So let's look at what's called the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, to which Abraham said, Hineni, here I am. There exists within Judaism no other narrative from Scripture so often read, recited, and prayed over as Genesis 22. You may have never realized that, but that also means that would have been the case for Jesus when he was growing up and when he was alive here on earth. There is no other portion of Scripture, in ancient Judaism to modern Judaism. There is no more portion of Scripture recited, read, studied, and prayed over than Genesis 22. No of you would have ever guessed that if I were to ask you that question. What do you think is the most popular, studied passage in the entire Old Testament for Jews? It's Genesis 22. Fascinating. During the daily prayer services, after the initial morning blessings and before um, the recitation of the sacrifices, even to this day, every day, Orthodox Jews read Genesis 22. They read it every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Every year, nonstop, every day, every single day it's read. No matter what the day is, it's always read, okay? That's how important it is. And that's how much it would have been in the mindset of the apostles, the disciples, Jesus himself, this chapter. So the observant Jewish world reads, prays, studies over the narrative of Genesis 22 every single day of the year. The binding of Isaac is also the principal reading for the second day of Rosh Hashanah, as I've said. Genesis 22 is called the Akedah. The Akedah means the binding. That's binding Isaac up. So Genesis 22, verse 22. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. The Torah never wastes words. Every jot and tittle of the Torah is important. Intentionally and fraught with deep meaning. But the phrase, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, is less than economical. Why does it say your son? Don't we already know that Isaac is Abraham's son? Don't we already know that Abraham loves his son? Why is the Torah telling us your son, your only son, the one you love? Talmud explains with a dialogue, a supposed dialogue between Abraham and God. It's kind of amusing. God said, take your son. Abraham said, I have two sons. God said, your only son. We'll get into the word for only in a second. Abraham replied, they're both only sons of their mother. God said, well, the one you love. And Abraham replied, I love them both. So God said, Isaac. All right. in his address to Abraham God speaks of Isaac only in terms of association to Abraham, emphasizing the deep father-son relationship. To explain the unique father and son relationship between Abraham and Isaac, the writer of the the book of Hebrews uses the Greek word monogenese, which means the only begotten, the uniquely begotten not only in the terms of solo one and you have no other but the one that was begotten in a unique manner he says that isaac was abraham's unique son his uniquely created son hebrews eleven seventeen. the apostle john applies the same title to jesus he's called the only begotten of the father and when john does this he's intentionally quoting genesis 22 He's wanting to take your mind back to Genesis 22 and the father-son relationship between Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac's unique father and son relationship is recognized in several rabbinic legends regarding the story. And one such legend, scoffers said, quote, the child is Sarah's, but it's not Abraham's. Abraham's too old to sire a son. This is the son of Abimelech. Remember Abimelech the king who had Sarah for a while? So the rumor was like, yeah, this son is not Abraham's, it's Abimelech's. In response to these scoffers, God made the face of the child Isaac to be an exact mirror image of Abraham. We'll come to that in another Torah portion. When they looked at the son, it was as if they were looking at the father. Catch that? We'll see in a later portion when we get to Isaac, it'll mention Abraham's name back to back in a very awkward way, but it's emphasizing that when you saw Isaac, you saw Abraham. And when you saw Abraham, you saw Isaac. If you've seen the father, you've seen the son. And if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. Have we... Have we heard that before? That's coming, believe it or not, from Genesis. The gospel writers in the life of Jesus are living out these aspects of the Torah. This is part of the word being made flesh. And so when they looked at the son, they were looking at the father. Then they knew it was truly Abraham's son because he was the image of his father. If you look in the gospel of John, in John chapter 8, two different occasions in that chapter, people are scoffing at Jesus for the same reason. They claim, Mary, we know, is your mother, but Joseph isn't your father. We don't know who your father is. At least we know who our father is. And they kind of prod Jesus on, who's your father? Who's your daddy? And of course, Jesus then responds, those who have seen me have seen the father, which is a reference back to the midrashic legends of abraham and isaac that his opponents would have known and it's a powerful connection That saying the father-son relationship of abraham and isaac that is the relationship i have with my father in heaven as i am that unique son i the way isaac was the unique miracle baby boy including the one whose blood brings atonement that is me and my relationship to the heavenly father. So again, Genesis 22, verse 2, it says, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. The messianic shadowings of Isaac's life, particularly in the story of the Akedah, I mean, they just glare off the page. Isaac, the promised and sacrificed son, speaks to us of Jesus. Believers in every generation recognize these parallels. I'm just going to give you a handful of them. Jesus is the promised son of the covenant with Abraham. Jesus is the promised son of the covenant um, that comes about through Abraham. Isaac's born through a miraculous conception. Jesus is born through a miraculous conception. Isaac is the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise. Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise. Isaac is offered up for sacrifice on one of the mountains of Moriah by his father. Specifically, I believe, the Mount of Olives. Jesus is offered up as an offering by his father on the Mount of Olives. Isaac does come so very close to death, and we'll talk some more about that, and yet he lives. In fact, the book of Hebrews says it's as if he were killed and that he was resurrected. Jesus dies and also lives. One surprising disparity between the Christian and Jewish readings of the story is the age of Isaac when all of this happens. What's the typical children's Bible understanding of how old Isaac is? He's a child. He's a little boy, right? Um, But that's actually not the case. That's not the case. The image of a 10 or 12-year-old boy with his a uh, father struggling up a lonely mountain is well cemented in many a minds. But the Torah does not tell us that Isaac was a boy. It actually calls him in Hebrew a na'ar. Which means a man who's still a bachelor. It means a bachelor but it means a man. A na'ar. A man that's not married. Hasn't been married. He's called that in Genesis 22.5 and Genesis 22.12. Um, plus Isaac if you follow the text, is right at the age of 37. How do we know this? The reasoning is based on the story itself. The Torah records Sarah's death in Genesis 23, immediately following Isaac's sacrifice in Genesis 22. Sarah died at the age of 127. She was 90 at the time of Isaac's birth. Therefore, following the storyline, Isaac would have been around 37 at the time of his binding. Now, what's significant about Isaac being in his 30s when this happens? Who else was in their 30? What other only begotten son, unique to his father? Yeah, we know that Jesus was of that same age. It was Isaac, a young adult at the time of the Akedah, and Abraham, well over 100 years old, It would have been impossible for the aged father to forcefully bind and sacrifice his young son in the prime of his life. And so we're going to see that as well. This is part of how it was believed in the Exodus when they paint the blood over the doorpost so the angel of death passes over them. This is something, again, many in Christianity don't know. Do you know whose blood Jews believe that was? I believe it was Isaac's. They believe they were saved by the blood of Isaac. I'm not asking you to buy if it's true or not. I'm just telling you that is what they believe, and that also is what they believed in the first century Galilee. Right? And so you can, again, begin to see these connections. And the reason they believe it saves, that his blood saves, was because Isaac chose to do it. Does the text tell us Isaac knew what was happening and that he willingly chose to do this? Actually, it does. Hang in there. So we want to remove the image of the helpless young boy being led oblivious to his death. Replace it with the image of an adult male in full control of his faculties, willingly holding up his wrists for his father to bind. This is the image that is not unlike that of our Messiah, who for the love of his father and the love of his God consented to be sacrificed. The parallel is uncanny. Both men in the prime of their lives submit to lay down their lives for the sake of the bond they have with their father. Had Isaac wanted to resist he surely could have overpowered his aged father. Had Jesus wanted to resist he tells us he had all the power to do so. When guards came to arrest him in the night in the garden he said to Peter, "Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels?" Matthew 26:53. John's Gospel, John 10, verse 17, Jesus says, I lay down my life. We're going to see that's alluding to Genesis and the Akedah. I do it so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Let's keep going. We'll keep playing with these. Genesis 22, 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. Hmm. Unique son with two other guys. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. In the Midrash... Satan was very much opposed to the binding of Isaac. In fact, Satan did all that he could to prevent Abraham from successfully bringing Isaac to Moriah as a sacrifice. And, as you might expect, Satan gave his primary efforts in the form of three temptations. In the first temptation to Abraham... He disguised himself as a wise old man, and he challenged Abraham and said, Surely you have misunderstood or misrepresented God's command, the old man cautions Abraham. He warned him that the consequences of such a barbarous act would hurt both Abraham's reputation and God's. Despite such cogent arguments, Abraham refused to be dissuaded, and the first temptation was a failure. Undiscouraged, Satan tries again. This time he disguises himself as a young man so as best to approach Isaac. And this new guise, he warns Isaac, Do you know what your crazy father intends to do to you? He's lost his mind. He's gone crazy in his old age. And although he tried to convince Isaac to turn back from Moriah, Isaac was shaken but not dissuaded. Twice foiled, Satan tries a different approach. For his third temptation, he disguised himself as a wide river blocking the path to Moriah. Abraham and company attempted to ford the water, but the further they went, the deeper the water was until it reached their necks. They were all terrified, but then Abraham declared, I know this place on which there was no brook nor water. Surely Satan, who does all of this to us, has tried to trick us. Abraham then rebuked Satan and said, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Get behind me. Hmm, okay. For we live and go by the command and the words of God. Frightened at the rebuke of Abraham, Satan vanished and the place became dry ground. The fingerprints of this legend are all over the Gospels. The three temptations are Jesus, of Jesus are of similar character. And perhaps the legend of Satan's three temptation pops up, though, in another story as well. Not just Jesus' temptation. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, Jesus rebukes Satan after Peter tries to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem to be crucified. The circumstances of Matthew 16 and that incident are similar to those of Abraham and his son. Both parties are on their way to the land of Moriah for a sacrifice. Both are determined to accomplish the journey in order to fulfill the will and the purpose of God. And both are challenged by the voice of reason, or Satan. In both stories, Satan has committed himself to preventing the sacrifice in Moriah from happening. And in both stories, the response to the temptation is a sound rebuke. Jesus was alluding to this well-known legend when he rebuked Peter. If, so we're inferring that Peter uh, wasn't like demon-possessed, and he wasn't like a, like Satan, literally, when he was at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. Instead, the implication of Jesus' words would be that Peter was playing the role of Satan in the new Akedah story. Jesus' rebuke was meant to bring to Peter's mind the familiar legend of Satan attempting to stop Abraham and Isaac from going to Moriah. It's a way of saying to Peter, we go by the command of God. Regardless of how we understand it, the legend paints a stunning correlation between the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, and the death and resurrection of Messiah. Both parties on their way to Jerusalem, both challenged by Satan, both resolved not to allow any adversary to deter them. And it's interesting that the rebuke Jesus gives Peter is the rebuke Abraham gives to Satan. And the whole goal of both of those was to prevent the unique son from making it to Jerusalem For the sacrifice. Genesis 22 verse 4. Continue in Genesis 22? On the third day. Abraham raised his eyes. And saw the place from a distance. The fact that the Torah. Bothers to inform us that the events of the Akedah. Occur on the third day. Is significant. The third day is a day laden. With the expectation of salvation. Throughout scripture. For example. Hosea connects the third day with the resurrection. Hosea chapter 6 verse 2. He will revive us after two days and he will resurrect us on the third day so that we will live forever before him. Rabbi Levy taught that this was said by Hosea, quote, in the merit of what Abraham did on the third day. As it says, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place from a distance. Of course, we, the readers of the Gospels, are no doubt familiar with another third day. Continuing in Genesis 22, verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. This particular connection to the oral tradition I don't, I, every time I read it, it just gives me chills. So again, I, well, I'm connecting it to an oral tradition that was around first century Galilee and before that would have been in the sitzim Laban, the mindset of any religious Jewish person. It's still studied today. That's why it gives me chills. So the text says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. The stark and vivid picture is inescapable. Isaac's working his way up Mount Moriah, which the New Testament, by the way, so calls Golgotha, bent under the burden of the wood for the fire. On his back, he carries the wood upon which he's to be sacrificed. It's almost as if the Torah is shouting to us, Isaac is like Jesus, Jesus is like Isaac. But listen to what the Midrash Rabbah says. This is what it said in a comment. This is a commentary on Genesis 22, 6, before, Jesus is, before the time of Jesus being crucified. Like one who carries his, on his own shoulder the stake upon which he is to be executed, so Isaac carried the wood. The Hebrew word there, stake, is the same word as cross. The oral tradition on Genesis 22, 6 is like the one who carries on his shoulder the cross upon which he's to be executed, so Isaac carried the wood. One climbs the hill of Golgotha, the other climbs the hill of Moriah, both on the Mount of Olives. Both go by the will of their father, both carry the weight of the wood their fathers have placed upon their shoulders. Continuing in Genesis 22. I'm hoping you can see. It's in in Hebrew as clear as day. It's clear as day in English too. If you can divorce your normal understanding of it. Isaac, they're on their way. Isaac's certain to figure this out. What are we doing? We're off off to sacrifice. Isaac then says, where's the sacrifice? Here's, Abraham's answer. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. My son. Do you catch it? The Hebrew has no punctuation. Where's the sacrifice? God will provide the sacrifice. My son. That's the verse where Isaac realizes what's happening. And that's where he could have said to his very aged father, no way. But instead he submits. He submits to the will of his father. Because Abraham here is saying, the sacrifice? The lamb? The lamb is my son. The lamb is my son. That is the traditional understanding of that verse. The Hebrew verb, Ire, translated as provide in verse 8, actually means to see. A literal translation would read, God will see for himself the lamb. What does it mean that God will see the lamb? One ancient opinion explains that when God sees the blood of Isaac, His wrath is turned away from his people. This is the connection they made to Passover. A connection is made between the Akedah and the Passover sacrifice in Egypt. Why does it say God will see? This is from the Midrash. The Lord answers, I, when I see the blood of the Akedah of Isaac, as it is said, and Abraham called the name of that place Adonai Yireh, Jehovah Jireh in your English translations. And elsewhere it says, And as he was about to destroy, the Lord saw and changed his mind. First Chronicles 21.15 What did he see that he would change his mind? He saw the blood of the Akedah. As it is said, God will see for himself the Lamb. Genesis 22.8 The traditional understanding from the Hebraic background is God will see for himself the blood of the sacrifice, Abraham's son, and he will change his mind. He will relent. This explanation presents the sacrifice of Isaac as a propitiation that averts God's judgment. Accordingly, the blood on the door frames during the Egyptian Passover symbolized the blood of Isaac. When God saw the blood of the Passover lambs, he was reminded of the Akedah of Isaac and did not strike the firstborn of the house. In the Midrash, the merit of Isaac's sacrifice was sufficient to protect the Israelites from God's judgment on Egypt. Again, according to the Midrash Rabbah 1511, the Akedah of Isaac occurred on the day of Passover. Similarly, the apostles linked the symbolism of the Passover lamb with the death of Jesus. The blood of the Passover represents Jesus' blood. Jesus' sacrifice also occurred at Passover. 1 Corinthians 5:7, for Messiah is our Passover and has been sacrificed. When Abraham says, God will see for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, we think of the Messiah the Lamb of God, a title for Messiah. The Revelation refers to Messiah simply as, quote, the Lamb. God will see the Lamb that is sacrificed in Jerusalem, and the Lamb is also called my son. Making it personal. So I like to conclude our times each week by taking the portion Hopefully through the rest of the week, you'll read the verses, kind of use this to kind of kickstart you in, and find ways to bring it down into some practical daily living. So let me begin with a story. A young boy once went to the circus, and he was astonished when he saw a giant elephant tethered to the ground by a thin rope. Curious, he walked over to the elephant trainer and asked, How are you holding down such a huge elephant with such a tiny rope? The rope doesn't look very strong, and this elephant could break down a brick wall. Why doesn't he simply break free from the tiny rope? The trainer smiled at him and explained, When this elephant was a baby, maybe weighing 250 pounds, We tied it up with this very same rope. And every day he tried to break free, but he couldn't manage to do it. He tried and tried and tried and tried, and to no avail. After a few months, he finally gave up, convinced that it was impossible for him to escape. Now he weighs 8,000 pounds and is strong enough to easily break free of these ropes. However, in his mind, he is still chained by an unbreakable rope. So he doesn't even try to escape. In the portion Vayera, Abraham famously says these words, afar which literally means, I am but dust and ashes. Generally understood as a statement of Abraham's extreme humility, There's a deeper layer to what Abraham means when he says, I am but dust and ashes. He's not just referring to his mortality. He's not just referring to his stature before God Almighty. He's not just being humble. But in order to understand the deeper intimations of this very important statement of Abraham, let's go back to last week's portion of Lake Lachah, in which Abraham has a perplexing encounter with God. God promises Abraham that he will become the father of an immeasurably populous nation to which Abraham actually voices his doubts. It's last week's portion. He challenges God. He claims that not only is he currently childless, but he believes he's destined not to have a child ever. That's how he's kind of, quote, reading the stars, if you will. Because if it were going to happen, it would have already happened. Wouldn't it have? How then, he asked God, can you promise that I will be the father of a great nation as multiple as the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky? And then in last week's portion, when Abraham objects that way, God responds by taking Abraham literally, outside, outside says, and God took Abraham outside. Rashi explains this to mean that God took Abraham kind of outside and above reality, above the stars, gave him a greater vision of things beyond supposed destinies and possibilities from Abraham's perspective. In other words, he took Abraham outside of the box. Because it, it's a unique Hebrew phrase. It just says he, he took Abraham outside. So it's understood to mean he took him outside of his typical way of thinking. Now we can understand Abraham's famous statement, "Anoki afar affair." Ashes represent an elemental breakdown, the most basic particles of an object. Dirt is the starting point of any growth, the place where seeds are planted and given life. In a deeper sense, Abraham was saying that every day he would ash himself dirt himself break himself down into his elemental root form and then he would plant himself anew that he would seize every day every day he would plant anew every day he would see things anew every day he would not take what he thought he knew yesterday and transplant it to today in other words Abraham would recreate himself Every single day, Anoki afar affair. The most amazing part of this famous statement, though, is its placement. When does Abraham say this phrase, Anoki afar affair? I am but dust and ashes. He says it right after his name is changed from Abram to Abraham. Only once Abraham realized that his potential is limitless. And then he can transcend the stars, if you will, that is, the possibilities. Did he also realize that he could endlessly develop himself, ashing and planting himself anew every day? So let's go back to our story about the elephant. What happens when the elephant discovers that the rope really isn't strong enough to hold him down? A fire once broke out in the circus, and during the ensuing chaos, the circus tent fell down. And after the dust settled, the trainers began to search for the elephant. To their amazement, they could find him nowhere. Finally, a few hours later, they found him wandering in the nearby forest. You see, during the fire, the elephant had been overcome with such fear and adrenaline that in his panic, he easily broke free of his ropes. When they tried to tie him down again, the elephant escaped just moments later. They tried again, but the elephant broke loose once more. It was clear that once the elephant realized that the ropes could not hold him, he would no longer be held back by these chains any longer. While at one point he thought those ropes controlled him, he now realized the only thing that was ever holding him back was himself. The trainers had no choice. They had to find a new elephant for the circus. So does this idea ring true for you? How often do we create mental cages of our own? How often do we allow other people's opinions of us to shape our reality? We allow people to tell us that we can or can't do this, or what we're able or unable to do. Sometimes it's a friend or a loved one, but worst of all, it's when it's our own inner voice that is the cause of the doubt. We convince ourselves that we can't. We're not smart enough. We're not good enough. We're not pretty enough. We're not funny enough. We're not old enough. We're not young enough. We're too short. We're too tall. But here's the key. We are the only ones holding us back. We are the ones who have the key because we are the ones who've created the lock. And opening the lock is simple. It requires we make a new decision, that we change our identity and that we believe it is possible. History is being read, but it's also being written today by people who have courage and imagination. We need to imagine a greater future, a greater vision of ourselves, We need to close our eyes and picture the ideal future. Then open our eyes and know that by God's grace, we can work toward that reality. This is going outside and above the possibilities. When we are in touch with our best and highest selves, that is when we are connected to our God through his Messiah, and his word given to us, which is the source of all self. Anything is possible. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do some things. I can do all things. We limit it. We are the ones that limit it. Let's be inspired to follow in Abraham's footsteps. Journey beyond the stars, beyond the possible. As the old Jewish proverb says, shoot for the moon. Because even if you miss, you're still going to land among the stars. An action point for you this week. Think about the last time self-doubt or fear held you back from doing something. Make yourself a list of three things you can do to help you push through it next time. And then with that in mind, read the portion Viera. Read the portion Viera. All right, we will close there. As I said, just so many amazing things in this week's portion that connect to Jesus, in some ways, I kind of left it high level because I want you to read the text now. Now that you kind of got an idea, pay attention to things like carrying wood, washing feet, giving bread, offering water. All, you know, kind of now have that kind of cooking in your mind. Read the portion. Imagine yourself in Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus opening the scriptures to you. Let's close with a blessing. Baruch atah Adonai noten atorah. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift that is the Torah. Amen. Shalom and Selah. Go in peace. We will see you next week, same time, same place. Hi, everyone. Thank you for engaging this teaching. You know, we at Emmanuel have as one of our goals to make our teachings available online to anyone. Everywhere at any time, whether that's through a podcast or our YouTube channel or an MP3 download. It is our gift to you, and we want you to use it however you see fit. Also, if you feel uh, motivated or desire to support future teachings, you can do so with the donate button at the bottom of our teaching page. That's found at immlutheran.org forward slash teaching. Again, Thank you for participating in our teachings here and hope to see you or engage with you somehow some way somewhere God bless